We're going to have a seat. Good morning and welcome. Uh, if you have a Bible, get it out and turn to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a number of Bibles in our lobby. I would encourage you to grab one of those uh, so you can follow along. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. But one of the reasons that pretty much every sermon you'll ever hear at Faith Church starts with get your Bible out and open to uh, is, one, we highly value God's Word. And two, I want you to know I'm not making this stuff up. Okay, right? I want you to see what the text says, because there's going to be some things here today that are just straight up crazy um, and that you could think are uh, being made up but are not being made up. And as we continue in the book of Exodus and we continue through this series, uh, Exodus called out, uh, we've made this assertion over and over again that God is the hero of the story in the book of Exodus. Uh, but what's interesting is up to this point, most of what we've seen so far in the first couple chapters in the book of Exodus is that God has not been referenced or mentioned all that much. And, and, and where he is, it's kind of in a peripheral sense, uh, or, or he's not explicitly mentioned at all. And yet what you and I know is that he's clearly present. It's just that up until this point, the emphasis has been more around the Egyptians and the Israelites. Although when you get to chapter 3, where we're going to be this morning, what you're going to see is God is going to show up in a big way. And God is going to show up and God is going to speak. And when God speaks, there are a number of things that are going to happen. God is going to make himself known. Um, God is going to lay out his plan. Uh, before Moses for the Exodus, and God is going to reveal himself in a variety of different ways. And what, what God is going to do for Moses in Exodus 3, and by application, what God does for you and I in Exodus 3, is he is pointing us towards the reality that he is greater, that he is uh, far better, that he is supreme, that he is uh, over uh, all other gods. He is unlike any other god. Uh, that has ever existed. And so let me just, here's the argument that I am going to make this morning. It's this, is that God is announcing, God is declaring, God is proclaiming who he is and what he will do. It's the main idea. It's the point of where we're going. It's the thrust that we're after, that God is announcing who he is and what he will do. Now, typically when we preach, we, we uh, have a desire that we preach applicationally. We want God's word to speak into our lives. I don't think this morning will be any different. Um, but what you'll see in Exodus 3 is very much the emphasis in this text is around the person of God. And so from time to time, when we move through the scriptures, you come to certain texts where there's really not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot in this text that's about you and I. This text is really about God, and it's going to inform and instruct us with respect to God. Although there's a couple of points that we'll come to that I think that are just really uh, helpful for us and applicable in our lives. So Exodus chapter 3, we're going to do the entirety of chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter right now. I would encourage you to follow along as I read this aloud. God's word has this to say to us, loved ones. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Which is not only Moses saying, I'm here. It's also Moses saying, I am available. I am surrendering. I am submitted to you, Lord. Which uh, will become very important next week when we get into chapter 4. And Moses starts pushing against uh, all that God is asking him to do. Maybe you want to circle that and we'll come back to that next week. Verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Which is what you see categorically throughout the scriptures when people find themselves in the presence of God is fear. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And then almost turning uh, from that kind of big picture. Now, uh, speaking directly to Moses, he says this in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God's response in verse 12 is this, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord Right? God's personal name, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I shall be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. What a text. And uh, why don't we go before the Lord and ask him to guide us and lead us and direct us in this time and give us wisdom to understand uh, all that he has for us. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, I just thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come and to be in your presence. And God, we just pray, God, we pray that what you would do is you would move and work in and amongst your people. God, that you would give us a humility uh, to, to, to hear and to respond uh, according to the truth of your word. God, uh, for some of us, we need to be encouraged. For other, others of us, we need to be challenged or convicted. Uh, all of us need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would come and you would meet us where we're at and that you would speak into our lives. But God, not only for us, we uh, pray for another church in the area. I pray for Pastor Frank Melizzo and for Mountain Christian Church. God, I thank you for Frank and I thank you just for his uh, longevity in ministry and the ways that he has so faithfully served that congregation. And just pray that you would continue to be at work uh, in and through that body of believers and that you'd be speaking powerfully through uh, Frank as he preaches this morning. And God, for us, we pray that you would do the same. We pray that your spirit would move and work within us, that you would have the power uh, to speak into our lives and to do as you please. Uh, so Lord, come and have your way. Come and do what only you could do. Uh, come do your good work in and amongst your people. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we just pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is When God Speaks. When God speaks. And, and one of the things that, that we see here in uh, Exodus chapter 3 and actually runs through about the halfway point of chapter 4 is there's this conversation that's going on uh, between Moses and God. And, and most of chapter 3 is pretty one-sided. Most of the conversation is being driven by God. Uh, he's the one who is, uh, who's putting most things on the table. Moses is just posing a few questions about what God is doing. <clears throat> As he is speaking and telling Moses all about himself. And so what we're going to do for the remainder of our time is we're going to walk through uh, chapter 3 and pull out all of the different things that God is telling us about himself. And, and before we get to that, let me just maybe in a broad sense uh, give you two uh, broad categories that we have to understand uh, God through or see God through with respect to this. First of all, uh, make note of this, that God is transcendent. 
That means that God is above us. He's beyond us. He's, he's distinct from us. He's separate from us. And so uh, even in, in any typical Sunday morning in most churches, you see this in some sense, right? Where you guys are down on the floor and I am up on a stage. And so there's this separation. There's this distinction between us. Now, do not, do not, do not walk out of here today and be like, well, my pastor said he's like God. That's not what I'm saying. I am just saying this is an example or an illustration of that, right? There's a distinction that God is above us. But in as much as God is transcendent, here's the other word that you want to make note of, and it's imminent. And what imminent means is that God is amongst us. So if I were to come off the stage and I were to preach right here on the floor, right amongst each and every one of us, that God is also imminent, that he is with us, that he is amongst us. Now, what's fascinating, what's fascinating is, is when we think of God and when other people think of God, we tend to run to one of those two poles. And we think of God solely as being transcendent and he's separate and distinct and far away from us. And he's above us. And so these are the people that want to emphasize the power and supremacy and authority of God. And that's not wrong, but that's not all that he is, is it? We run to the other side of that and that God is amongst us, that God is a friend to us and and he's close to us. One of the things that I think is fascinating is when you look at other religions, no other God even attempts to be both of these things. They just run to one or the other. And yet who is God? He in totality is both transcendent in that he is entirely different from us. And yet he is uh, imminent in that he's right there amongst us. It's incredible. And so what, what you'll see throughout the text this morning is this toggling back and forth of the transcendence of God, but also the imminence of God. And so if you look at your sermon notes, you'll notice that I broke a record for sermon points this morning. Uh, There are nine. And so I promise we'll have you out of here by 2 o'clock. Cowboys and Broncos don't kick off till 2.25, so no one cares about anything else that's going on in the NFL today anyway. All right? Um, Which, I mean, is that like a civil war here? I don't think I've been here when the Broncos play the Cowboys. Is that like the state of New Mexico just divided? How does that work? Like, seriously, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a Cardinals fan. We're terrible again. Um, so I'm, you know, in about six weeks, we'll be mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. And uh, I'll have to care about someone else. But, okay, enough about that. Uh, nine things that we see around the person of God. When God speaks, and obviously we're going to spend more time in, in some of these than we will in others of these. Notice this, first of all, in verses 1 through 6. When God speaks, God reveals himself. When God speaks, he reveals himself. He makes himself known. So here's what's going on. Look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. So here's Moses as a shepherd out in the wilderness, uh, kicking stones and throwing sticks and whatever else shepherds in that day and age would do. And he's out there at Mount Horeb, which he tells us is the mountain of God. And of course, this will uh, be a really important location later in the book of Exodus. And here's what I want you to make note of. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord, and most scholars and commentators believe this to be God himself, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Here's what I want you to note. Moses did not find God. God found Moses. Moses was not looking for God. But God, no doubt, was looking for Moses. And see, I think that's so comforting for us to be reminded of the fact that even when you're not looking for God, even when you're not pursuing God, God and his kindness and his goodness and his grace is going to be pursuing us. Long before you were ever concerned about God, God was deeply a concern for you. And it's God's love that compels him to pursue us and and, and to draw us into relationship. In fact, the tagline for our sermon series is that God calls us out of sin and bondage into relationship with him. Right? That he is initiating, he is pursuing, he is chasing after us. Which is really kind of a big deal because what Romans 3 tells us about you and I is that no one seeks for God. So if God is not doing that, no one is ever finding God. And what we see in Exodus 3, Moses isn't out there looking for God. He's chasing sheep. But God is looking for him. And so notice what happens. He sees this burning bush. And that's not what grabs his attention. I'm already a little bit thrown off because if I'm hanging out in the Hemez or if I'm hiking in the Pecos and there's a burning bush, I'm already like, what's going on here? 
Apparently, that wasn't the thing that most like, oh, there's a burning bush. Maybe that just the heat of the desert and the dryness that happened more often than we're used to. They didn't have firemen, so maybe that was more common than what we're used to. But I'm already a little bit like, wait, why, why are you not drawn by a burning bush? But it has to not be consuming the thing for like, oh, I, I guess now I'll check it out. Uh, but so, so the bush is, is, is burning, but it's not being consumed. I mean, I've just never seen that. You ever seen that? Of course you haven't seen that because it's the only time we know of that that's ever happened, right? There's this fire, but the bush is not being, uh, uh, con- or the, it's not being consumed. So Moses goes over to that. And I think the wildest part is what comes next. He goes over and now what Moses hears is his name being called out by the bush. Now, I don't know about you. Like, first of all, if I see a bush burning, I'm a little bit thrown off. If it's not consuming the bush, now I'm really thrown off. But if it's saying my name, I'm freaked out. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's kind of scary. And and, and so Moses is there. And and, um, here's what I love about this is God is calling him by name. Because our God, right, this is the eminence of God. He's a personal God. He's a God who's with us. In the same way that God is calling Moses by name, he calls you and I by name. That's what Isaiah 43 tells us. Child, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. Right? God doesn't ever forget your name. It's not like, hey, buddy. <laughs> now, you and I have those moments, right? We have those moments. God never has that moment. God's never like, uh, Mark, Mike, Matt. Like, I know it starts with an M. He knows us. I mean, think about that, though. You and I forget people. God never forgets his children. So powerful, right? Calling Moses by name. He's pursuing him, drawing him to himself. And part of his re- revealing of himself is, is, is notice a couple things in verse 5 and 6. Uh, he says this in verse 5. Do not come near. It's close enough, Moses. Stop right there. Take your sandals off because where you're standing is holy ground. See, one of the things about God revealing himself is, is uh, make note of these two things. Here's the first, that God is holy. God is holy. Now, when you and I tend to think about holiness, what we tend to uh, think of is more the moral, um, or, or, or the, the, the moral aspect of holiness, that, that, that someone is morally right or pure or righteous. And that's not wrong. But the word holy actually means set apart or separate. It's distinct or different. God's not like us. Right? This is the transcendence of God. That he is above us. That he is better than us. That he is greater than us. And that's where we say, whoa, stop right there. Not too close. Because you can't handle being too close. Because of God's holiness. But then notice also this. Even though God is distinct, he says this. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right? And so he's drawing him in. But notice Moses' response at the end of verse 6. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Right? Part of God revealing himself is, is his holiness. Part of God revealing himself is the sense of being drawn in, but this healthy tension of fear. There's this healthy tension of fear. Moses is like, okay, I'm afraid. And I think for far too many of us, we have lost this sense of fear of God and awe of God, a wonder of God. Yes, God is, uh, uh, make no mistake, God is our friend. But God is also the sovereign, supreme ruler in your life and in mine. And in fact, over and over and over again in the scriptures, when people come into the presence of God, what you see is fear. Remember Isaiah's throne room? I'm ruined! That's what he sang. He expects to die. Do you remember the transfiguration where Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John? And Peter starts stumbling out all kinds of foolish and, and, and moronic things. Why? Because he's afraid. He's like, I don't know what to say. Remember the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? I'm going to go persecute some Christians. And God's like, no, you're not. And Jesus shows up. And he's blinded and he's fearful of what's happening. This is what happens when God reveals himself. That we're drawn in, but there's this healthy sense of fear. God is to be feared, loved ones. He's not like us. So when God speaks, first of all, what we see is God reveals himself. Notice this secondly in verses 7 through 9 is that God delivers his people. Then the Lord said, 
I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. But see, all of these things are tied to what we see here in verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. See, God delivers his people. This is what God does, is that he rescues, that he delivers, that he frees us from the bondage, from the slavery, from the sin that we find ourselves in. Now, here's what you have to understand. Don't miss this, that Israel's slavery is a depiction of our slavery to sin. In fact, listen to this quote from John Calvin, one of the reformers. Calvin says this with respect to Exodus 3. He says, We again, instead of supposing that the matter has no reference to us, should reflect that the bondage of Israel in Egypt was a type of that spiritual bondage in the fetters of which we are all bound until the heavenly avenger delivers us by the power of his own arm and transports us into his free kingdom. He goes on and says this, Therefore, as in old time, when he would gather together the scattered Israelites to the worship of his name, he rescued them from the intolerable tyranny of Pharaoh. So all who profess him now are delivered from the fatal tyranny of the devil, of which that of Egypt was only a type. We talked about this last week, this idea of typology, right? That Moses was a type of Christ, that this slavery and the bondage of, of, of Israel and Egypt is a type of the slavery and the bondage that you and I experience because of sin, right? And a type is, it, it's, it's a model or a form or a type that's, that's pointing us to a greater reality. Now, you and I didn't live through the Exodus. We didn't live through slavery in Egypt, and yet it resonates with us. Why? Because we understand what it is to be enslaved in sin. We understand what it is to to need to be delivered. And so just as Israel is under the whip of the Egyptians, so you and I are under the spell of the evil one. And we're in need of salvation. And you and I are only to be rescued. Hear me when I say this, loved ones. You and I are only to be rescued if God will step in and deliver. Which is what he does in the book of Exodus. And it's what he does in your life and mine through the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he dies in your place and in my place, when he bears the wrath of God upon himself, you and I are rescued from the penalty of sin. When God speaks, he reveals himself. When God speaks, he delivers his people. Notice this thirdly in verse 10 through 11. When God speaks, God commissions us to serve. And so here, God turns very distinctly, um, telling about himself. And now he's directing this at Moses. Okay, Moses, you're going to do something. That's what he's saying. You're going to do something. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God commissions us to serve. He's like, you're going to be the agent by which I accomplish this great work that I've just told you about. And here we encounter One of the amazing paradoxes of God's grace. That God, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. God uses sinful people to accomplish his saving work. Isn't that awesome? God uses sinful people to carry out his saving purposes. God has not abandoned Moses because of his past failure. God God hasn't forsaken him because he messed up or screwed up. In fact, he does just the opposite. He launches them back into ministry. Hey, I know about your past. I know about your failures. Guess what? Back to work, buddy. And he launches them back into ministry, which I don't know about you, but I think that's a good reminder for all of us, for those that feel that sin has somehow disqualified us or eliminated us. Well, I couldn't possibly do that because, well, there's this thing in my past. Well, have you murdered someone? That's what Moses did. And yet God is launching him back into ministry. Let me just ask you, you got something in your past? Don't raise your hand, okay? Um, That might be embarrassing. (laughs) Although all of us should raise our hand, right, when we're asked that question. You got something in your past? I would just say to you that you're in good company. Because every single person in the scriptures is with you, with the exception of that guy named Jesus. See, because in the same way that everyone in the Bible has issues of of, of sin and rebellion and brokenness and wickedness, it is true of you and I. It's true of us. In fact, just this week, I was um, reminded of that reality in my own life. We had some friends over, and I have no idea how we ended up uh, on this particular um, 
story or account, but, but we ended up talking about cars and driving fast up and down streets and whatnot, and it reminded me of, of, of something I'm not proud of that happened a number of years ago back when Becky and I were in Flagstaff. And so let me just give you just a hint into how messed up and how broken your pastor is, okay? Uh, so we lived in these townhouses, and it was on a pretty busy road, and we were at the back end of those townhouses, and we were surrounded mostly by college students who some of them, I think it was their personal mission to break the speed of sound driving up and down that street, okay? And so you can just imagine, like, as a papa bear with three little kids, um, that, that wasn't exactly my favorite thing. And Davis was this little escape artist. He would just get out of the house and take off. In fact, one time, just to give you some context, one time, Becky and I realized he's not in the home he's gotten out. And so I run out the door and my angle, what it let me see as I looked to the street was someone in this massive SUV stopped in the road, door open, hands on their head with this look of horror on their face. So what am I thinking? I'm thinking, man, you just killed my son. And I go racing out to the street and there he is, like 18 month old Davis in the street, someone else coaxing him back. Hey, where do you if he's 18 months old, he has no idea where he lives. No, no point in asking that kid that question, right? But, but so this is the context that we lived in. And so there was one particular individual that just, um, he and I had a number of conversations would be maybe a more generous way or gracious way of saying it. Altercations might be too strong somewhere in the middle. Okay. So you kind of have a sense of what's going on. Uh, I just let him know at the end of one of those exchanges that if he didn't stop, I was going to give him the gift uh, of a rock in the back of his car. And so, um, I wish I could tell you I never threw a rock at his car. Uh, cause, but I can't tell you that because that's what happened. Um, now, he was driving away, so it wasn't like the impact was as bad. Um, <laughs> but I'm sitting here with my friends, and I'm like, my goodness, I threw a rocket. So who does that? I told you, your pastor's got issues, right? And, and, and in as much as I got issues, I know you got stories. Maybe you didn't throw a rocket car, but you got something else that I haven't done, okay? So I know we're in good company, but I'm sitting there. And then what begins to come flooding into my mind is we're kind of laughing about it, but this guilt and the shame and, and, and Satan just begins to say, why are you in ministry? Who, you don't know anyone else throwing a rocket a car, but you have. And at the time I was actually a pastor. That's what made it even worse, right? Um, <laughs> And yet, by God's grace, by God's grace, this text, God's saying, no, no, I'm going to launch you into ministry. That's what he does. God commissions not perfect people, but broken people into service. And so this commissioning of Moses, hear me, loved ones, when I say this, this is a reminder that every believer has a job to do. Every believer has a job to do. Now, now, part of me, just in a very pastoral, gentle way, wants to say, hey, do your job. Like, do your job. And then part of me wants to get really firm, grab your shoulders and say, do your job. Do your job. Right? We are commissioned to serve. Come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, notice Moses' response in verse 11. Moses says what I think all of us deep down in our heart of hearts wrestle with all the time. Who am I? I want to underline those words in your Bible. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This might be one of the most honest moments in all the scriptures. Because Moses is sitting there going, um, do you know who you're talking to? And, and maybe he's thinking about his own shortcomings or his inadequacy. Maybe he's confronted with the fear of Pharaoh's power and his history and past. Maybe he's thinking about the enormity of the task. But what's in front of him is, is who he is and more importantly, who he isn't. See, what Moses is having to wrestle through is what all of us have to wrestle through all the time. And it's his identity. Who am I? Who am I that I'm going to go do this? Now, this is something, right? Society is constantly pushing this back in front of you and I. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And we're forced to ask this all the time. I'll just tell you, one of the things, you just look, you just take a social view at, at the landscape of our day and age. And this, this question has changed so radically in the last 50 to 100 years. And it hasn't gotten better. If anything, it's gotten worse. Because a hundred years ago, so much of your identity was tied to things that were much more anchored and stable. 
Right? It was tied to your parents. Um, nuclear families were much more common. It was tied to where you grew up. People actually lived in the same home for most or all of their childhood. Um, it was tied to what you did. And I'm not saying that all of those are, are good things or right things, but there was much more stability in our land. But today, now what about today? Today, it's totally different. You ask this question and the response is totally fluid. I mean, you, you can literally reinvent yourself in no time. We've got all kinds of different communities and identities and ways that we um, associate ourselves with and, and groups and subgroups. And I can be this person online, but I'm this person over here. And then I'm this guy over here. We're all kinds of different people. And so here's what happens while there's all kinds of opportunity for us. What we lack is nothing that we're tethered to or anchored to with respect to our identity. And so what happens is, is it boils down to me. That all of my identity is derived by me, through me, to me, and for me. And so what shapes my identity, what forms my identity is simply me. And so that just brings all kinds of anxiety and angst. Identity is no longer something we receive. It's something that we achieve. And I'm not saying that's actually true. That's how we think about this. Who am I? And today there's all kinds of faux identities, pseudo identities, false identities that we run to in attempts to answer this question. So let me just press this here for a moment, because I think we need to press in on this uh, just a little bit. Here's, here's, I got four. I got four false identities that you and I have to fight against, okay, that we have to fight against. And we got to return to this identity of who we are in Christ. First of all, here's the first false identity that is just riddled throughout American culture. And it's this, it's I'm, I am in control. I'm in control. I can handle this. I can do this. I don't need help. Now, let me just ask you, what, what happens when you lose control? You fight harder to regain control, only to realize that you're not really in control. Matt Chandler rightly says this about this. He says, when your identity is tied up in controlling things, you have no choice but to be anxious or angry. Why? Well, you're anxious because you're constantly fighting the reality that you might lose control or you're angry because you actually have lost control. Can I just help you out with this? You're not in control. You're not. I mean, if the news cycle in the last two weeks has bore anything out for us, is that you and I are clearly not in control. Because if we were, we would have rerouted Harvey and we would have rerouted Irma and there wouldn't be fires burning in the Northwest and the things in your personal life would look differently too, wouldn't they? And yet we fight this all the time. No, I'm in control. No, no, no. You're not in control. Further, who are you? Who are you if you lose control? That's a scary question. Second false identity. Also thoroughly American. Uh, I am what I own. I am what I own. My possessions, my bank account, my retirement, my square footage, my car, whatever it is, this is what finds me. This is who I am. Now, if you could boil your identity down to who you, that you are, what you own. I mean, honestly, you're the, the two options are debt or depression or both. Someone's always got something that's nicer, better, bigger, newer, cleaner, more efficient, more expensive, whatever it is. I am what I own. Some of you could share in your own life how God took everything like that. Who are you now? If you are what you own and it disappears tomorrow, who are you now? See the problem with this? I am what I own. Thirdly, third false identity, I am what I do. I am what I do. This might be your job, might be your education, your intellect, your skills. Let me just one question with this. If you are what you do, what happens the day after you retire? Who are you now? Watch plenty of people struggle through that one. If your identity is wrapped up in who you are, who are you after you retire? Fourth false identity, I am who I'm with. Might be family, might be friends, might be social network. I'm this person's spouse. I'm this person's child. I'm this person's parent. And what happens if that disappears? What happens if they go away? What happens if God takes them out of your life one way or another? Who are you now? You see the problem with this? You see the angst and the anxiety and the worry and like, man, I, I, how do I maintain this? Well, you can't. That's the point. 
Let me, let me try to just tie this all together. I came across this great example um, in one of the commentaries that I was reading this week in Exodus. And so a guy named Tim Chester wrote a really short, really helpful commentary on the book of Exodus. Now, he's a British guy, uh, which will probably explain the illustration. But um, he talked about, imagine you and I were to go to Buckingham Palace. And we showed up and we went to the guards and we're like, hey, we'd like to go see the whole palace. Like, I'd like to see everything. I want to see the secret rooms and I want to hang out with the queen. And what are they going to say to you? If they don't just straight up say no, they're going to go, who are you? Well, I'm Mike McDonald. Don't snicker. They're going to laugh at you too, okay? So what? You're not getting in. And if anything, one of them is probably going to be like, uh, yeah, can we get a little backup on the West Gate? we got a crazy over here. I'm not sure how this is going to go down. Right? I mean, that's probably what's going to happen. How about Kate Middleton as a 15-year-old? How far is she going to get? She's going to get about as far as you and I are. How about Kate Middleton today? What happens when Kate Middleton walks up to the guards? What are they going to say? Who are you? She's going to say, I'm with him. I'm married to the prince. See, in the same way that she derives her identity from the prince, you and I derive our identity from Christ. And so notice what God actually does here. In verse 11, when Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice what God says in verse 12. He doesn't say, well, hey man, you're powerful or you're strong or you're a great orator. He doesn't, he's, he, look at what he says, verse 12. I will be with you. Now, there's two fascinating things that happen there. And this is fourth thing we see about God is that God is present. Uh, the first is this. God is actually leveling with Moses. Who am I? And God's like, don't make me say it, please. Like, just don't make me go there. Because honestly, you're just not much, bro. That's what he's saying. Because if Moses was something, he'd be like, well, you know, hey, you don't feel so bad. You're doesn't say any of that, does he? He's leveling with him. And, and in fact, it just... Maybe make a little note of this, a side note. This is actually a kindness of God that here he's helping Moses not to trust his talents or his gifts or his strength or his ability, but to trust God. That's what he's doing right here, man. You've, you can't, but I can. And so in one sense, he's leveling with Moses. In another sense, he's saying, listen, I'm with you. That's what matters. That's what's crucial. That's what's important. And then he goes on and he says this. This shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He's like, hey man, make a mental note of this. It's you and I today. A point in time is coming where it's going to be you and me and a whole nation hanging out on this mountain. Spoiler alert. In case you don't know, Exodus 19, that's what's going to happen. And so maybe you're still wrestling through that question of who am I? And what you need to hear is what Moses needed to hear when God says, but I will be with you. He's with you, loved ones. Right? When God speaks, God tells us that he's present. Notice then this, look at verses 13 through 15. We see this about God, is that God defines himself. God defines himself. Now, there's a whole lot. You could honestly do an entire sermon on these three verses. You could probably do two or three weeks on these, uh, the, the, the entirety of, uh, of those two or three verses. Um, there's so much that's happening here. But notice, notice a couple of things. First of all, Moses said to God, I, I love this. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, like, first of all, if, bro, you're going. There's no if about this. And so I don't know if Moses is just trying to figure out like, okay, how do I put this together? Or if this is kind of his way of going like, hey, just asking for a friend. But like, if I show up um, and, and, and then notice what he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I almost wonder if Moses in his mind is going, okay, I'm like, I'm going to roll back into Egypt. And I'm going to go, I was hanging out in the wilderness for 40 years. I was tending sheep. This bush was burning, but not really. And this voice spoke to me and it told me to bring you guys on out. So let's go. I'm guessing they're not going to be like, oh, that sounds like a great plan. Let's do it. They're going to be like, you're crazy. You're straight up crazy. And so I think Moses is maybe hedging his bets a little bit here going, uh, help me out here. What should I say to them? And so here's what God says to him. Verse 14. I am who I am. Or I will be what I will be. Or I be who I be. 
This is God's personal name that he is speaking to the people. Now, one of the fascinating things about how you would translate this is there's a um, past, a present, and a future component that is all wrapped up in this, which really helps to understand who God is, right? I am who I am. This is the same thing that Jesus said in John 8 when the religious leaders and him were getting into that debate. And they're like, hey, we think you have a demon. And... uh, I mean, wouldn't you love, I mean, wouldn't you just love to say that to someone sometime? Hey, I'm pretty sure you have a demon. Maybe you wouldn't love to say it, but we've thought it, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that's going on inside of you. And so that begins this exchange with Jesus and the religious leaders. And where he finishes is he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they start picking up rocks because they're ready to stone him right there on the spot. Why? Because of this right here. They know what he's saying. They know that he's saying the same thing that God said to Moses, that that he's identifying himself as God himself. Because no one gets to define who God is. No one gets to describe who God is. God defines himself. Now, you've got to hear me. You've got to hear me when I say this. You and I, you and I have no say on who God is and who God isn't. You get no input. God's not looking for your feedback. There's no opinion there where God's like, hey, you know, public, public opinion matters. No, it doesn't. God doesn't care. God defines himself. So statements like, well, I think God is like, or my God would never. You know, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, so... Okay, what's really happening in those moments is you want to define God for yourself. You want to create God in your image, not realizing that you are an image bearer of God. God is defined by nobody but himself. Now, in one sense, it's not surprising that we do this because we've been the rules all over the place. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see just the sheer hypocrisy in our society. Because in our society, you could never tell someone that, that, that well, I'm gender fluid or I'm um, uh, racially fluid or I, these are all stories that I read this week that I am a child, but I identify as adult. I'm an adult, but I identify as a child. I am a person, but I identify as a cat. I am totally healthy, but I identify as disabled. And I read a host of other just equally troubling stories. That, it's all over the, the, the nation, right? This is how we live and function. How dare you tell someone who they are and who they aren't? And the absolute hypocrisy that we would not say, no, that's actually not true. You're not a cat. You're a person. Let me, let me just help you out with that. That's who you are. The absolute hypocrisy that we won't say that, but we have the audacity to go, no, 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 God, let me redefine you in a way that's more palatable for me. I want you to be this. Therefore, this is who you will be. God doesn't give us that option. God doesn't say, I am who you want me to be. I am who you'd like me to be. I am who you'd like to form me. No, no, I am who I am. That's what he says. God defines himself. What you and I are left with, hear me very carefully on this. What you and I are left with is one of two options. You follow that, you reject that. It really is that simple. There's no middle ground. You don't get to redefine God. You don't get to reshape God. God doesn't need a public, a public image makeover. doesn't need any of that. You and I have no freedom to alter or change who God is. God defines himself. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. It's not, hey, Moses, y'all can do this, but like 3,000 years from now, we're going to need to redo this because it's not going to be socially acceptable. God doesn't care. Just doesn't care. God defines himself. Notice this, number six. God directs for himself. I won't read all of it, but look at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, of the, God, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed and right, I'm going to lead you out. And he, he's telling Moses what he's going to do. God directs for himself. Now, maybe I missed it, but I didn't catch anywhere in the text if God was asking Moses whether or not he wanted to do this. Uh, maybe it's buried in the Hebrew somewhere or like it's subtly under. Okay, I'm joking with you. It's not there, right? It's not there because God never asked. God directs and God does that because he is the authority and you and I follow him. 
In the same way that in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he didn't say, hey, if you feel like it, if it works for you, hey, if you could squeeze this into your life, it's just this command, go. Rooted in who God is. So he gives this directive for Moses in the same way that he gives directives for you and I. Now, here's the crazy thing. When you get to the New Testament, so many of the New Testament authors identified themselves as slaves of God. And they're tapping into this reality right here. That God's in charge and I am not. And he will direct me with respect to my life and where I'm going to go. Now, we love, we love autonomy. We love, I want to do my own thing. It does not work like that in the kingdom of God. It doesn't. You're going to be in submission to God or you're going to be in rebellion to God. There's not a third option or third way. You do it his way or you do it your way. That's what it comes down to. God directs for himself. Notice also this, verse 17. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and on and on and on. God keeps his promises. Do you know that God keeps his promises? God keeps his promise. That was a great place for an amen. Y'all are sleeping on me, all right? God keeps his promises. Amen. Amen. In fact, this promise, this isn't even the first time that God's promised that. You go back to Genesis 15 and God actually tells uh, so much of what happens in the book of Exodus. He says, I'm going to give you this land, uh, but y'all are going to be sojourners for 400 years. And then I'm going to take you out and you're going to take all their stuff. That's what he tells them in Genesis 15. Long before they're ever even in the land. God keeps his promises. Now, this specific promise of coming out of the land is not applicable to you and I. It has no bearing on us, but the concept of God keeping his promises has all kinds of bearings on our lives. And so let me give you three. I could give you a hundred, um, but we'd be here till at least two o'clock if we did that. So let me give you three um, promises of God that I would just encourage you to hold on to uh, today and this week. First of all, this, the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. If, you're, if you are in Christ... If you can look to a point in time in your life where you've turned from sin towards Christ and have trusted in him and him alone uh, to do this, then your salvation is not on the line. You're not on the hook. It's not conditioned on whether or not you're a good person this week. In John 10, Jesus talks about those who belong to Christ are held by Christ. Jesus is literally saying, "I, I know my sheep and I hold them. And then it's crazy because what he goes on to say is that essentially God the Father is holding Jesus as he holds us. Just out of curiosity, who's breaking through that? Right, no force is undoing that. It's the promise of salvation. Right? God, does, God doesn't lose any of his people. And yet I watch Christians run around in fear like, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It doesn't rise and fall with you. It's tied to what Christ has done for us. This promise of salvation. Secondly, the promise that Christ is with us. Christ is with us in Hebrews 13. The author of Hebrews, actually quoting back from Joshua 1, tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. You know, that that he's walking with you in the midst of whatever's going on in your life this week. That thing that he's seeing you through, that thing that feels so overwhelming, that thing that you're not sure if you're going to get through, that thing that you just want it to end, that he's right there with you. He's with us. And then this, thirdly, the promise to hold on to, it's the, that Christ will return. He's going to come back. Now, what we tend to do is we get, we get all sideways on this and we make that kind of subservient to trying to figure out when and what is the sequence of events. We don't know when. And we're not even sure on the sequence of events. Here's what you can know is that he's going to return. In fact, I just, right before the service, someone was telling me that I guess some numerologist has come up with the fact that the world's coming to an end on, on uh, September 23rd. So, y'all, this is the last Sunday for church, according to this guy. So I hope you did it well, uh, because you're not getting another crack at it. Now, I'm mocking a little bit. Um, It's possible, because he's coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. But what we should hold on to is that reality. What we should hold a little more loosely are the sequence of events and the time and the place, because we don't know that. 
but God keeps his promises. Notice then this, and I'll move through these last two quickly here. Uh, starting in verse 18, um, I won't read it, but with, with great detail, what, what God does is he lays out for Moses essentially the next eight or nine chapters of the book of Exodus. Here's what's going to happen. And then when you're starting in chapter 4 uh, through the end of chapter 12 or chapter 13, it's exactly what God says here. Here's one of the things that we see about uh, God is that God controls the future. God controls the future. Now, here's my question for you. How different... How different would your life be if you truly believed that? I'm not saying that as an accusation. I'm not saying that as a slam. I'm not saying that to bring guilt or shame on anybody. I'm just asking straight up, seriously, how different would your life be if you really believed that God held every aspect and every component of the future? I think life would look incredibly different. Because the things that I'm fearful of, the things I'm worried about, the things that I can't control, the things that are in front of me, I'm like, how's this going to play? Well, I don't know how it's going to play out, but I know who holds it all in his hands. And I know that, that because God is a good God, I can trust him in this. And in the same way that God gives precise details of what's happening here over the coming chapters of the book of Exodus, God could, though he highly unlikely that he will give you those same details of your life. And he can do so not only because he knows what the future holds, but because he controls every single detail of what the future holds. And if you and I truly believed that, if we truly believed that God is going to allow something or withhold something or take something, and that if that's what's best for us, that we can move forward in that. I think life would look radically different if we truly believe that God controls the future. Here's the final thing, verse 21 and 22. Moses says this, I will give this people favor. That's being pretty modest. Um, you're going to take all their stuff, right? Women, this is like every woman's dream. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house, she's going to give you silver, gold jewelry, and all her clothes. It's like a free shopping spree, ladies. Someone else's dime. And it's all part of God's kindness and goodness and providence to his people. Right? Because God provides for his people. And he foreshadows the plundering of the Egyptians and the giving to the Israelites. This is part of what we saw in Genesis 15. He's telling us about it here. This actually unfolds in Exodus uh, 12. In Philippians 4, Paul talks about God making provision for his people and his kindness towards us. God provides for his people. Becky and I have this little saying that we'll say um, from time to time. The saying is this, favor ain't fair. Favor ain't fair. And it's kind of our way of just acknowledging that God is incredibly good to us. And it's not that he's good to us and he's not good to you. He's good to all of us. But it's just our way of recognizing and realizing that God gives us far more than we deserve. That we're so blessed. I can tell you today that there is not a single person on this planet who is richer than I am. Now, there are plenty of people who have more stuff, more things, more money, more a lot of things. No one's richer than me. No one. And don't come up and try to argue with me as to why you're more richer than me, because you're not. Now, you might be as rich as me. And I would hope you're sitting here going, well, Mike, no one's richer than me. That's the point, because if you're in Christ, that's true. The fullness of wealth belongs to you, because the fullness of Christ belongs to you. And God's provision for his people isn't just physical, though that's what we see in the text. It's far more than that. That he makes provision for his people in every facet of our lives. And so I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you, hey, has God provided for you? I already know the answer to that. Let me ask you this. Can you identify it? And are you grateful for it? And do you thank God for his provision in your life? When God speaks... There's an awful lot that happens. God has announced who he is. God has announced what he's going to do. Here's my question for us, loved ones. With all that God is and with all that he's going to do, how are you and I going to respond to him?